Hey guys, let me tell you about Fable Beard Company. As you know, they're the official beard company of the American History Podcast. Are you a manly man with a beard that needs some help? Maybe you're a lady who has a beard man in your life. If that's the case, I have something you're going to love. Fable Beard Company has some amazing beard products to help soften your beard and hydrate it so it's the best beard you could possibly have. Now, when it comes to beard products, as you know, I'm a huge fan of beard oils and butters that are infused with CBD. Currently, I'm using the CBD-infused beard conditioner and oil known as the Baker. This particular oil is complete with a fantastic scent profile and the quality only Fable can deliver. Each bottle contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum CBD oil. Oh, and the scent profile? It's, it's fresh-baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and a hint of cinnamon spice. Believe me, gentlemen, the wife or the girlfriend is going to love it. Head over to Fable Beard Company right now and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of the show. Now, if CBD isn't your thing, then head over to FableBeardCo.com and check out all of their oils and butters, as well as beard conditioners and even products for women that don't have CBD in them. The coupon code works over there as well. I particularly enjoy the non-CBD products known as the distiller. The scent profile for these bad boys is creamy vanilla, rich mold spices, aged bourbon, and deep barrel woods. And remember... Use the coupon code SEAN15 to get 15% off each and every order. Now, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 29, Franklin Roosevelt and the Election of 1932. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now today we've got a doozy of an episode for you. Uh, before we get started, as always, let me say that if you're enjoying the show and you find it valuable, please share it with your friends and family or, I don't know, with your enemies or some. Just share it out there. Share it out there on social media and let's get the word out. Um, you can also help find the show or help others find the show by giving us a five-star review on iTunes. Now if you'd like to help us keep the lights on, you can head over to www.patreon.com slash americanhistory. For as little as $5 a month, you'll get access to the show a week early and commercial-free. You can also access the bonus series, 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, and bonus episodes such as The Massive, Crackers, Rednecks, and Donald Trump. We also have a level that will reward you every few months with show merchandise, so check that out and see if that's something you'd like to do. And one last thing before we get to the actual episode. Thank you very much for all of your support. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you've learned a lot. Honestly, I had no idea where this show was going back when I started it in 2017. And at several points along the way, I considered not doing this anymore. But here we are almost four years later, and the show is continuing to grow, mainly thanks to you and to your kind support. So once again, thank you. Now the song of the week this week is Duke Ellington, and it's called It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. See you in a moment. Don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. Makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Just give that rhythm every little thing you got. Don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. 
Okay, so this isn't the sort of episode I do often, as I'm sure you're aware, especially if you've listened to all of the previous episodes. You might have noticed that I'm not a fan of politicians, and I'm not really a big fan of political history. But this episode, we focus on a politician, probably the most skilled politician of the 20th century, and certainly of his generation. You know I'm talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I don't believe it's an exaggeration to say that he's one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. Now, before we go on, let me make clear that this is not to say that I like him. Again, I'm not a fan of politicians, but historians often rank him up at the top of the former presidents, along with George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Now, whether or not I think this is a good thing, the presidency of FDR changed everything. Historians argue about whether there has been a realignment election since 1932, but all agree that 1932 and 1936 was a realignment. There's no doubt 32 was the start and 36 saw it solidified. Now, after FDR came into office, he and his administration not only redefined liberalism, but they redefined the role of government. Furthermore, thanks to World War II, the U.S.'s role on the world stage changed. Now, one could say that we took over the role played by the British, and going forward, both parties, for the most part, accepted his overall foreign policy. Now, if you dislike the idea of the imperial presidency, it really comes into being during his four terms, even more so, I think, than, say, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson or Theodore Roosevelt or even Abraham Lincoln. And while all of those men were quite active and could be accused of being, quote, imperial presidents, the men who followed after them were less so. However, after FDR, every president has basically governed as FDR did. And while he left office in 1945, even President Barack Obama was compared to Franklin Roosevelt when it did a cover, or when Time Magazine did a cover with him looking like FDR for the September 12th, 2012 issue. Now let's take a moment to think about this. It had been 67 years from the time of Roosevelt's death to that issue, and yet the media was comparing Obama to FDR. I think it was during the 2008 election cycle when at least one media pundit said the Republicans need to get over Reagan. And I agree. It's funny to hear politicians like John McCain or Mitt Romney compare themselves to Reagan. It seems they are not, and we're not anything like him, and neither one, I mean, neither one was skeptical of big government as the 40th president had been. But one thing you never hear about the Democrats or Democrat politicians is how they need to move on from FDR. I don't even know why I'm mentioning this, but I thought I found it interesting, so I'd throw it out there. All right. Now let's discuss Roosevelt's parents and his early years. His mother was Sarah Delano, the seventh of 11 children. Now I should note that her two oldest siblings, both of whom were sisters, died young. The oldest child, uh, Susan, died around the age of two, and the second child, Louisa, died around the age of 23. Her father, Warren Delano, is said to have spoiled all of his children, but it appears Sarah especially so. Warren had become a China merchant, which in the mid-19th century meant he was an opium dealer. And needless to say, he made a fortune smuggling opium into China, and he was able to retire to a vast estate on the Hudson River, which is where Sarah was born in 1854. Now, believe it or not, the Panic of 1857 caught Delano in its grasp, and he was almost ruined financially. Thus, he returned to the East and sold more opium than ever before. He took his family to China, and they settled in Hong Kong living a life that probably 99.9% .9 of the Chinese could not have imagined. During the American Civil War, Delano shipped opium to the Medical Bureau of the U.S. War Department for use in the treating of soldiers who were wounded in the fighting. Now, while opium selling wasn't illegal, thanks to the British and the opium wars they fought against the Chinese, it was definitely not seen as respectable. So Warren did his best to move away from it once he had earned enough money um, at least in his estimation, to weather any future downturns. The family, instead of sailing home directly, then took a round-the-world trip. Sarah sailed with her brother and sister first to Singapore, then Egypt, where they were able to see the Suez Canal as it was under construction. They also visited France and England before finally returning to home to the United States. At some point, Sarah was bitten by the travel bug, and she would return to Europe and China over the next 10 years, as well as visit Egypt to transit the newly completed canal, and she even spent time in Germany. By the time she finally settled in her life along the Hudson, Sarah felt she was a person apart, 
although she had the good graces to not say it. Now, few of her contemporaries could boast of having seen so much of the world. Heck, even today, most Americans, I would say, have not seen as much of the world as Sarah Delano, unless perhaps they were in the Navy. Now, Sarah, by the time she was 18, was a beauty, and her father obviously protected her from the various male suitors on hand at that time. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point was not far away, and she had many suitors come calling, only to be rebuffed by her father. Warren would not have been worried about her suitors based solely on their future employment. He would also have been concerned by their political affiliations. He was a staunch Republican, and certainly not overly fond of Democrats. Here's a quote from him, quote, I will not say that all Democrats are horse thieves, but it would seem that all horse thieves are Democrats, end quote. Of course, I find it incredibly funny that his grandson, his favorite daughter's only son, would not only become a Democrat politician, but he would perhaps be the most influential Democratic president in all of American history. Now, in the end, Warren was not able to protect his daughter from each and every suitor. Sarah had, during her childhood, become close to Anna Roosevelt, the older sister of Theodore Roosevelt. A party was hosted by Anna, and this particular party was attended by James Franklin, aged 51 to Sarah's 25, and a fifth cousin. The two hit it off from the start. The one strike against him? James was a Democrat. Now, you might be thinking that the age difference would have been something Warren disliked, but actually the opposite was true. Warren had done business with James and his partners, and he knew James from various clubs. The fact that he was older meant there would be a certain amount of stability in the relationship, as James was, of course, well off. Even the fact that he was a Democrat was eventually forgiven, as he apparently showed Warren Delano that Democrats could be gentlemen. Two years after they were married, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born to Sarah and James Franklin on January 30th, 1882. After the boy was born, Sarah was advised by her doctors not to have any more children, so he would be an only child. Now, while the young bride doted on her husband, Franklin was the center of her world. Unlike many of the wealthy parents of the 1880s, Sarah Roosevelt did not depend on servants to raise her son. She taught him how to read, she taught him geography, and rather than send him away to school, he was taught by private tutors at home. And having said that, make no mistake, James and Sarah did not allow the responsibilities of parenthood to dent their, active, their very active, I should say, social lives. Now, one of the interesting things about FDR, one which is mentioned by historian H.W. Brands in his fantastic biography, Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is his accent. He did not sound like a New Yorker, not even like a Hudson Valley Knickerbocker. He did sound rich, especially based on pronunciation, but the accent was difficult to place. Vaguely British, perhaps, which would make sense. He spent as much time in Britain as a child as he did in the United States. Either way, it is an interesting accent that he acquired, one which I'm sure you'll notice when we play a portion of um, one of his speeches in the next episode, and we're probably going to play a um, portion of one of his speeches here as well. Now, another interesting aspect of FDR was his comfort, not only with Britain and even Germany, but he was, perhaps, this is attributable to his class, quite comfortable at sea as he was on land. Brands notes this was similar to his mother and her generation of Delano's. Anyway, his childhood toys included boats at first models, but eventually the real thing. Hearing the stories of his mother's round-the-world voyages on clipper ships, he would haunt the wharves of New Bedford during his time in the summer there, visiting the old whalers and listening to the sea stories of the various sailors that he ran into. Eventually, Franklin did go off to school. First, he went to Groton, and of course, at first, he was homesick. Now, eventually, he settled into life there, focusing on athletics, which was somewhat of an obsession at the school. He played football, and while he wasn't a standout in the sport, he was determined to do the best he could. He was a fairly average student, and his best subjects appears to have been algebra and literature, with his weakest areas Greek and history. I find it quite interesting that he was rated excellent for punctuality, which is something of a pet peeve for me. Um, if anyone knows me, they'll tell you I despise tardiness and decorum. Tragedy struck when, on December 8, 1900, Franklin's father, James, passed away. He was 72 at the time, which was fairly old for that time period, so it probably wasn't all that much of a shock, or would not have been if the young Franklin was thinking of such things. I would suspect that he did not. In any case, Sarah, who always doted on her only son, now did so as never before. 
Sarah now rented a house in Boston so she could be close to Franklin, who was a student by this point at Harvard. James' death not only drew the two closer together, but it made Franklin more dependent on his mother financially, and it made him feel responsible for her emotionally. Probably the most important thing that happened while Franklin was a student at Harvard was the courtship of Eleanor Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's niece and Franklin's fifth cousin. Sarah Franklin was not thrilled by the courtship. In fact, she attempted to break it up on several occasions, not because she disliked Eleanor, but because she thought Franklin was too young, and she was quite possessive of her only child. Truth be told, Eleanor was a good match. She was intelligent and probably more thoughtful than most people her age. She was also said to be fairly good-looking, having masses of pale gold hair and a cultish figure, according to Brands. Now in the end, Sarah failed. The young couple married March 17, 1905. President Theodore Roosevelt stood in for Eleanor's dead father. What a wedding that must have been, right? Having the president there as the bride's stand-in father? Even this crazy anarchist thinks that would have been cool as heck. And I can't stand TR. Now, just in case you thought Sarah had lost and given up, think again. (laughs) I'll give her credit. She was determined to stay involved. She ended up purchasing a home for the couple in New York City, and she had a twin house built alongside it for herself. I guess you can't complain when she's the one paying the bill, but wow. I'll say Eleanor did her best to please her new mother-in-law, and she acted as the daughter that Sarah never had. Or at least she tried to. Now one wonders what effect this had on the eventual breakdown of the marriage. There is one story about how, just a few weeks after they had moved into their new home in New York, Eleanor was discovered by Franklin sitting in front of her mirror crying. When asked what was the matter, she replied that she did not like living in a home that was in no way hers, one that she could do nothing about, and, quote, did not represent the way I wanted it to live, end quote. Probably in what was typical for men around that time, Franklin basically said she'd feel better and left her to cry alone. I have to say that if we judged Franklin Roosevelt based on his law career, we'd not have thought much of the young man. He wasn't an outstanding attorney, and it was obvious to all around him that he was not long for the law. At least one of his colleagues remembers him saying that he intended to run for political office at the first chance he got, and that he wanted to be president. He even had a plan. First a seat in the state assembly, then an appointment as assistant secretary of the navy, then governor. Now, this might be someone's faulty memory replacing reality for what the young man had said, but if it's true, then it's obvious that he was a meticulous planner and an executioner of his plans from a very early age. While all of this might seem an obvious thing to us, as we look back on events that took place over 100 years ago, um, it wasn't really as straightforward as that plan makes it out to be, assuming it really was the plan. First, members of FDR's class did not run for office. Heck, the family was shocked when Teddy entered politics. Politics were, and are, a grubby affair, and those who participate in it are not the type of people gentlemen associate with. Now, while the road was not easy for Teddy, it was far more difficult for Franklin, and we haven't even gotten to the part where he contracted polio. His problem was that while Teddy's folk were Republicans, the respectable party in New York, FDR's people were Democrats. Democrats were far from respectable in New York. Remember, they were the party of Tammany Hall. This was the most storied, but also the most corrupt political machine in America. Of course, rather than switch allegiance to the GOP, Franklin turned what might have been a negative into a positive. I should note that for his first run for New York State Senate um, was certainly made a bit easier by his last name. Teddy was just completing his post-presidential overseas tour, and no name in American politics was more famous than the Roosevelt name. Further, the Republicans were in the middle of a civil war, so to speak, with the conservative wing um, wrestling to take control of the party from the progressives. And while his speeches tended to stress honest government and fair treatment of farmers, it was mostly the charismatic young man that people responded to. As Brands notes, the candidate had no special qualifications for office, but he brought compelling new ideas to the campaign and... While he had almost nothing in common with the people of his district, he had a sincerity and charisma that people responded well to, and in the end, he won. Having said that, winning the office would not be enough for the young man. He was going to have to make a name for himself. He did this by taking on the Tammany machine. He led a progressive revolt against the machine, although he tried to reject the label of leader. If the goal of his fight was to draw the attention of the national press, it worked. 
Cleveland Plain Dealer even linked the young Roosevelt to his uncle, saying, quote, If none of the colonel's sons turn out to be fit objects for popular administration, may it not be possible that this rising star may continue the Roosevelt dynasty? End quote. The aforementioned historian H.W. Brands notes in Traitor to His Class that 1912 offered the young up-and-coming politician a masterclass on competing theories um, of government power. He notes that you essentially had three takes on the matter with William Howard Taft, the more conservative of the three, and yet in my mind a progressive nonetheless, believing that government should defer, generally speaking, to the wisdom of the marketplace. Brands does note that Taft's administration dismantled J.D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company monopoly, but dismisses the importance of this. Personally, I don't think you can totally dismiss it. To say Taft, a progressive, even if not as radically progressive as some make Teddy Roosevelt out to be, was a believer in the free market is, in my mind at least, a bridge too far. But to continue, he notes that you had the other two, T.R. and Woodrow Wilson, both of whom were less enamored with the capital status quo than Taft. Essentially, you had three politicians, all of whom, to some extent, believed in the idea of capitalism running roughshod over democracy, and all three offered different ways to deal with this. He does not come out and say it, but it is assumed, quite correctly, that FDR was also of this opinion. It was in 1912 that Teddy outlined his new nationalism. He put forward his idea that ever larger corporate entities were a fact of modern economic life, and the point was not to dismantle these behemoths, but to use the power of the government to control them. According to Teddy Roosevelt, the federal government was the only entity powerful enough to bring these companies to heel. Interestingly, Woodrow Wilson took less comfort in this telling of it in the power of big government than did T.R. He was of the belief that government should act as the policeman of the economy, not as the overlord. However, like Roosevelt, he believed corporate interests had excessive power. Instead of increasing the power of government to deal with these entities, Wilson suggested it was time instead to reduce the power of the companies. Quote, What I am interested in is laws that will give the little man a start, that will give him a chance to show these fellows that he has brains enough to compete with them and can presently make his local market a national market and his national market a world market. End quote. Thus, Wilson's program, dubbed the New Freedom, would break up the trusts restore the conditions of competition that existed in the 19th century, and allow the so-called little man to have his day once again. Now, while Franklin may have learned a lot from both of these theories, um, his thoughts on most subjects were amorphous at best. He was still a progressive, so one wonders how much could he really learn from them that he didn't already know or believe. But where he could truly learn was in the way the American people reacted to these ideas. In the end, Wilson, of course, won, and Franklin Roosevelt would benefit as he'd come out in support of his party's nominee. However, there was a question. How much of the victory was simply due to Democratic Party loyalty amongst a certain percentage of the electorate, and how much was due to his small government progressivism, that being Wilson, being preferred to the big government ideas of FDR's Uncle Teddy? Now, I don't want to spend too much time with Franklin during his time as Secretary of the Navy, or Assistant Secretary of the Navy, but I do want to look at it. I think there is something here that is enlightening. But first, something his uncle said, and which he himself acknowledged, and by the way, I'm taking uh, some liberty paraphrasing here, but T.R. basically admitted that much of his political success was due to being at the right place at the right time. It was luck. FDR acknowledged this as well. The younger Roosevelt was truly at the right place at the right time when it came to his years as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. This was a time when America's shipyards were flush with money, and the nation was expanding the size of the Navy. It helped that he was pro-Navy, and he also happened to be a more-than-competent sailor. Franklin also staked out an extreme position in his job. He was the man who was always advocating for more money and more ships. He was careful not to contradict his boss directly, but he made his position on matters quite clear. Here are some quotes. Quote, In a time of war, would we be content like the turtle to withdraw into our own shell and see an enemy supersede us in every outlying part? usurp our commerce, and destroy our influence as a nation throughout the world, end quote. What enemy is he referring to? In, say, 1913, the U.S. really had no enemies. It had a rivalry with Germany, one born out of empire and imperialism, both of which are, according to some, anathema to the America as founded by the likes of Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. But here's more of, from the future president, quote, 
Yet this will happen just as surely as we can be sure of anything human if an enemy of the United States obtains control of the seas. Our national defense must extend all over the Western Hemisphere, must go out a thousand miles into the sea, must embrace the Philippines and over the seas where our commerce may be. Dreadnoughts are what we need. End quote. Now, if you're unaware of it, the Dreadnought was the most powerful battleship of the day. The first Dreadnought was the HMS Dreadnought. She was the first of her kind, the first to be powered by steam turbines, and she was the first to have a uniform main battery of big caliber guns. She was so much of a game changer that there really is a pre-Dreadnought and post-Dreadnought era. She sparked an arms race between the British and the Germans. Amazingly, or perhaps ironically, the HMS Dreadnought saw little action in World War I and was sold for scrap in 1919. Besides advocating for more ships, he also argued for higher wages for American shipyard workers. In this crusade, he was at odds with the Navy Board and the admirals who sat on it. He was not always successful in this area, but he showed the labor leaders that he was a friend to their cause, and this was, for a politician with aspirations to higher office, quite important. He also was sure to take credit when wages went up, and he was sure to lay the blame elsewhere when they didn't. As Brands notes, this might have been quite infuriating had Franklin not been so darn charming. If I may interject for a moment, this is the trait or the trait that all great politicians have. It infuriates their enemies, but their allies or the followers have no problem with it. Think of, say, a Ronald Reagan, a Bill Clinton, or even Barack Obama. Love them or hate them, they all have this almost Teflon-like quality. Maybe you'd include Trump in that list, I don't know. Uh, but for some reason, they were these politicians were often able to take credit when things went well, and when they didn't, they could blame others. Now, I don't want to go too deep here um, or into too much more depth about his early years. Suffice it to say that FDR made a decision to run for the U.S. Senate from New York and lost to a Tammany Hall-backed candidate. Franklin couldn't even get the support of the president for whom he worked, as Wilson needed the support of Tammany Hall and all of its supporters for his legislative agenda in 1916. In the end, it really didn't matter anyway, as the Tammany-backed Democrat was soundly defeated by the Republican candidate in 1914. Remember, that was an off-year election, and the party that holds the White House often loses congressional seats in that election anyway. So Roosevelt was always going to face a difficult challenge to win that election. However, before we move forward and discuss his illness, um, one brief aside. I do want to quickly discuss what he learned during World War I. First, after America entered the war, the style of Wilsonian progressivism suddenly became very coercive, almost overnight. The first triumph of Wilsonian coercion was the implementation of the draft. Now, of course, the president denied that it was a coercive in nature. Um, he called it selecting from a nation which has volunteered en masse. Now, if you want my opinion, and I'm going to give it to you anyway, the fact is that the draft is akin to slavery. These people are forced to join an organization they would not otherwise join. Or else, why the coercion? And to make it worse, they're paid low wages, especially when one considers the dangerous nature of the job. How much would you have to be paid to be in the Marines, let's say, in a time of war? So what did he learn? The government took control of the economy, going so far as to run the railroads from D.C. They hired hundreds of professional writers and thousands of four-minute men, basically spin doctors whose job it was to keep uh, support for the war. This was all done through the Committee on Public Information, a downright Orwellian organization, if there ever there was one. Then there was the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which directly forbade one from obstructing the war effort, even by just speaking out against it. And while Roosevelt did not write any of the laws, he did approve of many and even enlisted his own publicist to try and spur on the Navy Department to speed up their decisions. But this was not the only thing he learned. To his credit, he traveled to the front in the summer of 1918 and viewed the war firsthand. He visited both England and France, and it was in the latter where he really received an education on the reality of modern industrial warfare. He noted the sensory impact of the battlefield. The smell of dead horses hung everywhere, apparently. He even viewed the battlefield of Verdun, noting that the shelling was so intense there it obliterated all pre-existing features of the terrain. Now, as the Wilson administration was ending, FDR did see his political future within the party continue to shine. He was nominated to run for vice president, and although the ticket lost handily to the Republican Harding Coolidge lineup, Franklin looked back to the loss in a positive way noting that the connections and allies he developed in 1920 would serve him well in 1932. Now, of course, the Cox-Roosevelt ticket in 1920 had no chance of success, 
but that did not prevent Franklin from throwing himself into the campaign wholeheartedly. He did everything he could to win. Part of this could have been the fact that scientific polling did not exist at that time and did not arrive on the scene until the mid-1930s. Now amazingly, and in a way I admire both Cox and Roosevelt for this, rather than distance themselves from Wilson, they embraced him and his ideology, especially the League of Nations. As you can probably imagine, I'm not the biggest believer in Wilsonianism. Wilsonianism. As a matter of fact, in my mind, it's a blight on American political ideology that is sadly still with us today. Be it the presidency of George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, or now Joe Biden, they are all believers in and proponents of Wilsonianism in American foreign policy. Some more than others, but they're still, they all believe in it. Trump might have been the least Wilsonian in his personal beliefs, but he did not govern much differently than any of the others. But that's a topic for a different show. In the end, Cox Roosevelt lost big in 1920, and Roosevelt suddenly found himself in need of employment in the private sector. Hey guys, let me tell you about our newest sponsor, NordPass. We're all online a lot these days, and one of the things uh, I know I've been worried about is password security. NordPass is a new generation password manager, where security meets simplicity. It's brought to you by the cybersecurity experts who built NordVPN, the advanced online security and privacy app that's trusted by over 14 million users worldwide. So what's so great about it? It's powered by NordVPN's cybersecurity professionals with a lot of experience in the market. All of your passwords are stored in one place, so you can dispense with all the various sticky notes on your computer desk. I've loved that part about it. NordPass remembers your credit card details for you. NordPass will create and remember complex passwords, so you don't have to worry about it. It even comes with both desktop and user-friendly mobile apps, which aren't offered by password managers that are pre-installed on your phones. Finally, NordPass has two new features. It has password health, where it checks to see if your current passwords are weak, older than 90 days, and or have been used for numerous accounts. If so, then it will help you to fix those issues. And there is even a data breach scanner, so you can know if your information is out there. For a limited time, you can get the one-year NordPass premium plan with 50% off if you go to https colon slash slash nordpass.com slash Sean, or you can use the coupon code Sean at checkout. Again, that's 50% off of a year. You can't get anything better than that. Check out NordPass today, and remember to use coupon code Sean at checkout. I guarantee you'll be happy you did. So now we get to the point at which Roosevelt was struck by illness and paralyzed for the rest of his life. But before I go on, I want to address the 800-pound gorilla that I have ignored up to this point, his affairs. It became public knowledge in the 1960s that FDR had a long-term affair with Lucy Mercer, Eleanor's public secretary, in 1914. Eleanor found out about it in 1918 and Franklin ended the relationship, which was later rekindled in 1941. Now, by the way, Lucy was with FDR when he died in 1945. And while Franklin thought about divorcing Eleanor, his mother, Sarah, was adamantly against the idea, and Lucy herself was not amenable to marrying a divorcee with five kids. Going forward, Eleanor and Franklin's marriage was more of a political arrangement than an actual marriage, and Roosevelt would have many other relationships. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's talk about his illness. Now first, while he was diagnosed with polio, doctors today believe um, that he might have been misdiagnosed, and and I can I know I'm going to... Um, mispronounced this word, this term here, but it was actually Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, I want to state that from what I understand, even if it had been properly diagnosed, the outcome would have been the same. While it is unknown exactly when he contracted the disease, FDR did attend the Boy Scout Jamboree in late July, and everything appeared well. As far as I'm aware, no known Boy Scouts or camp staff were ill or ever came down sick, at least not with this. However, FDR was ill in both 1912 and 1915, and I can't even pronounce this, so I'm not even going to try. Um, CJ, we're going to abbreviate it, CJ, um, Campo, Campylobacter jejuni, uh, something which can cause JBS, and hopefully I didn't tear that apart too bad. Now, there's probably a lot here to say, but um, this isn't a book-length treatment of FDR, nor is this a multi-part miniseries within the season. I will say that what I find most interesting about the illness is that it transformed Eleanor. As Brands notes, the dynamic in the relationship was that she needed him more than he needed her, at least up until that point. She had always believed that she was the needier of the two. However, 
Now the roles were reversed. She had to basically become his nurse. She had to learn how to thread a catheter into his urethra and to do it so with care and skill so that she could avoid the pain that could cause and prevent an infection of the kind that often shortened the lives of bedridden patients. She had to bathe him, dress him, manage the household affairs, do the day-to-day things that he could no longer do. And these new responsibilities, this new role, Eleanor and Franklin found a new beginning. Did he love her, and did she love him? That's hard to say, but the fact was, he needed her, and she seemed to like that. Now, besides the physical recovery, which would never fully come, Franklin Roosevelt had to deal with the mental recovery. There would certainly be depression and anger, but remember, FDR grew up in the Victorian era. Men of this period were certainly not expected to wallow in self-pity. Instead, they were expected to meet disappointment and the challenges of life with a stiff upper lip, a strong smile, and simply soldier on. Indeed, what else could you do? Brands says it best, in my opinion, when he said, quote, Disease struck unexpectedly, often inexplicably, and in that era of relative medical ignorance, when everyone was a victim at one point or another, no one won sympathy by wearing victimhood as a badge. Get over it. Get on with life. Might have been the motto of the era. End quote. And indeed, it became FDR's mantra. Now let's be clear. He still thought about what he had lost, probably cursed his luck when the pain in his legs was unbearable, but FDR, much to his credit, pushed the demons back and got on with it. His Roosevelt relatives refused to be weak in public, and the Delanos were no less determined to show weakness, or not to show weakness, period. Of course, attitude is one thing, reality is another. And when it came to reality, Franklin saw some progress, but nowhere near what he would have wanted. Within a year, the family had moved back to Hyde Park from New York City. He found his upper body had grown stronger than ever before, as it compensated for the loss of his legs. Indeed, the paralysis had settled into the, his legs, leaving his arms and torso just fine. He took up swimming as therapy, but in the end, his legs, while not getting any worse, did not get any better. One thing he did enjoy was, starting in 1924, his trips to Georgia. He visited Warm Springs after hearing reports about the health benefits of the springs. There was an outdoor swimming pool that he became enamored with. Now, the reality was the warm water and the fact that the water uh, was really dense thanks to the large quantities of dissolved minerals made it much easier to swim. Indeed, swimmers discovered they couldn't even sink if they tried. The curative effects were mostly psychological, but for one suffering such a debilitating disease, it must have been a joy. By 1924, Roosevelt plotted his political comeback, or at least his reintroduction. Al Smith, the governor of New York, was a candidate for the party nomination, and FDR gave the speech, nominating his fellow New Yorker. What was interesting about this, at least to me, was the fact that leading the Smith campaign was Tammany chief Charles Murphy. Roosevelt was not an ally of Tammany, needless to say. While they may never have been the best of political allies, uh, since they never fully trusted each other, they were both progressives and both needed each other. Smith needed the backing of a prominent and well-respected figure like FDR if he was going to win the nomination. Now, this speech would be very important for Franklin as well, and this is, I think, where he needed Al Smith, at least at this point. Um, this was his coming out party, kind of his reintroduction to society, and you can rest assured that every step was plotted and rehearsed. He was assisted by his eldest son, James, as well as steel braces for his legs and a cane. He went so far as to perfect the clenched teeth smile. This was accompanied by a seemingly effortless nod of the head, but it was accomplished with a great amount of muscular and psychological strain. One can only imagine the willpower it took for him to do this. I myself, I can't imagine how incredibly difficult this must have been. When he finally reached the speaker's podium, the crowd, which held its breath as he made his way to the stand, erupted in applause. Unfortunately, Roosevelt could not wave an acknowledgement as he was holding onto the speaker's stand for dear life as sweat poured down his face. In many ways, this speech reminds me of the address a young state senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, gave to the Democratic National Convention in 2004. In fact, it was the keynote address, and I myself turned to my wife and I said, this guy's going to be the nominee in 2008. One of the few times I've ever made a prediction that came true, and I only wish that I had bet money on it, but oh well. Now back in those days, the convention and those in attendance picked the party nominee, and it often took many ballots. 1924 saw over 100 ballots before they finally picked their man. 
The real winner, however, was not the actual candidate, but it was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Without a doubt, he emerged as a leader in the party for the foreseeable future. However, he was no fool. He realized that the nation, at least at this point, belonged to the Republicans. The economy was good, and as long as the GOP did not stumble, beating them would be difficult. Thus, he decided to bide his time, play the loyal son of the party, and, when the time was right, he would make his move. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids, or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. By 1928, Roosevelt was ready to take the next step. Al Smith, the New York governor whom he supported for the nomination in 1924, won it in 1928. Smith, for his part, asked FDR to run to replace him. However, Roosevelt wasn't sure this was the right time. He feared a Republican landslide in November, and the last thing he wanted was to lose. Now, he was right to fear the outcome. Smith lost to Hoover in a landslide and even lost his own state, New York. FDR did pull out the victory, but only just. He won by the skin of his teeth with a margin of about 1%. Now, shortly after the election, Roosevelt wrote Archie, who's T.R.'s son, quote, it looks like I will have a man-sized job on my hands for the next two years, end quote. And boy, did he. The Republicans controlled the legislature, and after the sweep of the Democrats in the election, they viewed Roosevelt as simply a fluke. He acknowledged that, were he in their position, he'd probably do what they did, ignore him. But Franklin was also determined to get his priorities past the state legislature, and for that he needed to cultivate allies when and where that was possible. In New York, this meant that you had to look to Tammany Hall. In a talk to that very group, Roosevelt predicted that the new media, i.e. the radio, would allow Democrats to sidestep the print media, which, for the most part, was pro-Republican. Now, I know that sounds strange today, but in the 1920s, the newspapers were quite pro-GOP. In some ways, I think you could say the radio was to FDR what Twitter was to Trump or things like Facebook were to Obama. For the first nine months or so of his governorship, Roosevelt accomplished none of his goals. There were two choices that he and the Democrats faced. One was to move more to the right, co-opt some of the GOP's ideas, or wait it out. FDR decided to wait it out. He was determined that if he waited long enough, the economy would lose steam, and both he and his party would be able to take advantage of the situation. Now, as you know, because you've been listening to this series, he was correct. The stock market crashed in October 1929, and Roosevelt the politician, the presidential hopeful, surely realized the worse the economic news the better things were for him. There was one problem. He was the governor of New York, and New York City was the center of the American financial industry. The last thing he needed was to look like he was happy that this most important of industries was in the midst of a crippling downturn. Of course, in his speeches, he emphasized the idea that the economic difficulties the nation faced was proof of the need for progressive reforms, the sort of changes he had been advocating for the better part of a decade. However, if Roosevelt was a presidential hopeful, he had one thing that he must do or his chances in 1932 would be ruined. He had to get re-elected in 1930. Failure to do so would certainly mean his hopes for 32 were over. As it happens, he had nothing to fear. He ended up smashing the Republicans in New York with a margin that gave the Democrats around the country hope, and certainly would have worried the Republicans. The morning after the election, the New York Times ran a front-page story noting that FDR had nationalist aspirations, and Roosevelt did not deny this. Some of his actions spoke to his aspirations, possibly none more than when he used his powers as governor to build the Theodore Roosevelt Hall at the Museum of Natural Science in New York City. It's true that his cousin had been a Republican all his life, but the point was to remind the public of the connection between the Roosevelt name and bold, progressive approaches to the problems of the nation. In this regard, he made the right move. 
Now, he also started to work the various factions of the party through proxies. To court the progressive wing, as well as the South, he looked to a former Wilsonian, Edward House, a Texan who had pull with both the progressives and the Southerners. House carried FDR's water in the South, ensuring that while many may not totally trust him, no alternative candidate would emerge from that section. Now, as for the West, Roosevelt used James Farley, an Irishman whom Franklin's right-hand man, Louis Howe, thought was perfect to send out West. Quote, he has a wholesome breeziness of manner and a frank and open character which is characteristic of all Westerners, end quote. It apparently was the right choice as he went on an 18-state tour throughout the region and was well-received by newspapermen, politicians, uh, potential delegates to the 1932 convention, basically anyone and everyone who might have an influence on the outcome of that convention. He talked up party unity and he listened. But what he heard pleased both him and his boss. Democrats in that region were tired of supporting losers, and almost all of them agreed that if FDR ran for office, he would win. Now, the one area, perhaps surprisingly, which would not be so easy to secure was the East. This was the home of Grover Cleveland-style conservative Democrats, folks who thought Roosevelt was not reliable on economic issues. You also had party philosophers who thought him shallow and Smith followers who were angered by the fact that their man was being outshone by Franklin. Now, this was a bigger issue than maybe it appears, and the heart of it was the man himself, Al Smith. There was an enmity on his part towards his former protege. While talking to the publisher of the Atlanta Constitution Journal, the subject of Roosevelt came up. Smith went so far as to say he very well could end up not supporting FDR. While it took a while, he finally did come to the point. The problem was he felt he had been snubbed by Franklin. Quote, he has always been kind to me and my family and has gone out of his way to be agreeable to us at the mansion at Albany. But do you know by God that he has never consulted me about a damn thing since he has been governor? He's taken bad advice and from sources not friendly to me. He has ignored me, end quote. He even complained that although the two had met recently, Franklin had failed to even mention that he was running for president. Now, obviously, Frank, uh, Smith did not like being eclipsed by his former protege, and it became clear to FDR, or that FDR, could very well be the next president of the United States, his former mentor disliked the fact that he was, in the end, being eclipsed. Now, as for his actual second term, Roosevelt did some of the things he would do as president. He created the Temporary Emergency Relief Administration, acronym TERRA, to create jobs for the unemployed and passed legislation for unemployment compensation as well as banking reform. TERRA, under no circumstances, would be given, uh, giving money to individuals. Instead, it tried to create, find or create jobs for those who had none, and if one couldn't be found, they would furnish food, clothing, fuel, even housing. Finally, in January 1932, he publicly acknowledged the obvious and declared that he was running for president. FDR suggested that he was a champion of the, quote, forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid, end quote. Now, let me just say here that I've done a lot of work on economics on this show, especially this season, so I'm not going to criticize FDR here. Just be aware of that my lack of criticism should not be taken as tacit support of his arguments or his beliefs. As the Depression grew worse, FDR advocated what he called building from the bottom up. He urged a reduction in the tariff, something I think he was right about. And, as usual, and I might have said this before, in the fashion of the typical progressive, he couched the fight against the Depression in the language of war. Quote, We're in the midst of an emergency at least equal to that of war. Let us mobilize to meet it, end quote. Now, by the spring of 32, Hoover was wounded. The economy was in the doldrums at best. He had tried to do something to fix it, but that did not work. How could he turn around now and say, do what I advocated he should have done in the earlier episodes? He'd look foolish after having basically accepted the idea that government can and should fix things. He can't suddenly, you know, change horses in the middle of the race, so to speak. Part of the problem, at least for history students today, who look back at the events of the past, is that sometimes we forget things might look like they were always going to end the way they did, but that's not how it was back then. For example, it appears, looking back on the Civil War, that it was inevitable for the North to win. But it was far from inevitable. As a matter of fact, as late as the summer of 1864, it looked as if the Confederacy would hang on, Abraham Lincoln would be voted out of office, and some sort of compromise would and could be reached. That is, of course, until Sherman destroyed Atlanta and gave Lincoln the much-needed boost that he would receive that fall. 
The same holds true for Roosevelt. Sometimes, looking back, since we know he won, it seems inevitable that he was going to win, and it seems as if everyone was on board. That was, in the end, far from the case. It might appear to us quite obvious that everyone knew who he was and what he was all about. Again, far from true. Walter Lippmann, a journalist and a writer at the New York Tribune, himself a progressive and a Wilsonian, admired FDR's ability, quote, to carry water on both shoulders, end quote. But he was at a loss to explain what exactly Roosevelt stood for. He noted that FDR was quite adept at both attacking and defending the status quo. And while his supporters said Franklin Roosevelt was the enemy of that which afflicted the United States, Lippmann laughed. Quote, Franklin D. Roosevelt is an amiable man with many philanthropic influences, but he is not the dangerous enemy of anything. He is too eager to please. The notion, which seems to prevail in the West and the South, that Wall Street fears him, is preposterous. If anyone thinks the governor has challenged directly or indirectly the wealth concentrated in New York City, he is mightily mistaken, end quote. As Brands notes, FDR's record in New York as governor showed he had a penchant for tough words, but not bold deeds. Now, if I may, I think this is where he is quite comparable to Ronald Reagan and even Barack Obama. All of them talked a good game about reform. Reagan railed against big government, and certainly he brought down taxes across the board, and he lowered the top marginal rate from about 70% to less than 50%, but he was never, or I should say he never, cut government spending, even though he was that was one of his major campaign promises, if not the major one. Obama talked about ending the empire, although he didn't use those words, but he certainly talked about it, and certainly when he was a senator in the Illinois state legislature, he kind of intimated that's what he was about. But he never did anything to bring American troops home and end the overseas commitments. This seems to be a feature of the greatest politicians, sad to say. They speak out of both sides of their mouths, and their enemies uh, take a, go to major pains um, to paint them as dangerous. But they're far from it. Okay, sorry for the mini rant there. I apologize. Now, as 1932 wore on, Roosevelt advanced closer and closer to his goal of gaining the nomination. Again, to refer to Brands, quote, Roosevelt's political labors of the previous decade, his correspondence with the state Democratic officials, his cultivation of William Jennings Bryan and Edward House, his convention appearances, his dispatch of Louis Howe and James Farley to consult with Southern and Western party leaders. They had been undertaken with this welter of decision-making in mind, and during the spring and summer of 1932, his efforts paid off. He won an early lead in delegates, and his advantage widened with each passing month, end quote. Now, by the time of the convention, Roosevelt had a lead, but not the necessary two-thirds to earn the nomination. The South was almost entirely in his camp, the two exceptions being, I think ironically, Texas and Virginia. Remember, Edward House was from Texas. The West was also in the bag, with the exception of California. His only other real competition for the nomination was Al Smith, but having lost in 1928, I don't believe he ever really had a chance. Now, the first ballot went as one would expect. Roosevelt gained 666 votes, more than half, but not two-thirds. Now, the monkey in the wrench, so to speak, was Governor, or was Texan, John Garner, the Speaker of the House, who controlled the delegates of both Texas and California. Now, he did not release his delegates, even though it appeared that he would not win. Garner was an old hand at the convention game, having attended every single one of them since 1900. He knew strange things happened once the voting began, and there was a chance that if the convention could not settle on one of the two frontrunners, then a dark horse could emerge. President James K. Polk, just one example, who indeed won the nomination this very way. Now, a second ballot had started immediately. This was a crucial moment. If Roosevelt's numbers slipped, he might lose everything. He gained 11 votes. The Roosevelt camp must have been relieved at this result. Al Smith's people probably began to realize the tide was against them. Now, after a third round of voting, FDR continued to gain ground and Smith lost it. Smith lost four and Roosevelt gained five. Now was decision time for Garner. Hold on too long and Roosevelt could win the nomination on his own. Then Garner would gain nothing. Of course, if he joined the FDR side now, he would be throwing away his chance to be president if he had a chance. So, what to do? Well, he cut a deal with Roosevelt and released his delegates. Franklin D. Roosevelt was nominated on the fourth ballot. 
Garner would be FDR's vice presidential pick. Now say what you want about FDR, but he certainly understood the value of setting a precedent. Having wrapped up the nomination, he decided to do what he had what had never been done before. He would address the delegates in person. Now traditionally candidates received word after the fact and then delivered an acceptance speech a few weeks after the fact. Instead, Roosevelt flew to Chicago. Now granted, many of the delegates had left by this time or by the time the nominee arrived, but that simply meant there was more room for visitors who then voiced their enthusiasm for the candidate, something that may not have happened had those delegates, keep it in mind, who were Smith supporters for the most part, remained. These were the people who heard the candidate, Roosevelt, speak. Here is an excerpt. For the office of President of the United States, Chairman Walsh, my friends of the Democratic National Convention of 1932. I appreciate your willingness after these six arduous days to remain here, for I know well the sleepless hours which you and I have had. <laughs> I have started out on the tasks that lie ahead by breaking the absurd tradition that the candidate should remain in professed ignorance of what has happened for weeks until he is formally notified of that event many weeks later. You have nominated me, and I know it, and I am here to thank you for the honor. Let it also be symbolic that in so doing, I broke tradition. Let it be from now on the task of our party to break foolish tradition. We will break foolish tradition and leave it to the Republican leadership, far more skilled in that art, to break promises. This convention wants repeal. Your candidate wants repeal. Okay, some of what he said in the speech, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but the parts that are of most interest in my mind, at least. Quote, There are two ways of viewing government's duty in matters affecting, or affecting economic and social life. The first sees to it that a favored few are helped and hopes that some of their prosperity will leak through to labor, to the farmer, and to the small business. This theory belongs to the party of Toryism, now the party of ruined prosperity. This is no time for fear, for reaction, for timidity. The people of this country want a genuine choice this year, not a choice between two names for the same reactionary doctrine. Ours must be a party of liberal thought, of planned action, of enlightened international outlook, of the greatest good for the greatest number of, pe of our people. End quote. Roosevelt portrayed the Republican approach as every man for himself, while he characterized the Democratic plan as all-for-one and one-for-all, so to speak. What Roosevelt termed liberalism was, in fact, progressivism. But, be that as it may, Roosevelt was shrewd in attacking the GOP. He said they pleaded helplessness to the laws of economics, quote, but while they prate of economic laws, men and women are starving. Economic laws are not made by nature. They're made by human beings, end quote. Now, of course, I would disagree with him. And I would argue that he would have learned this hard lesson in the years to come. The speech ended on a climactic note. Quote, I pledge you, I pledge myself, to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage. This is more than a political campaign. It's a call to arms. Give me your help, not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people, end quote. Now, as Brands notes, it was technically feasible to wage a campaign in 1932 from home. The radio networks made this possible. 
There was at that time two NBC radio networks, NBC Blue, which eventually became ABC, and NBC Red, which became NBC, and then there was CBS. However, the best way to get your message out was the same as it is today. Get yourself in front of the voters. Roosevelt's advisors told him to avoid a national campaign. All he had to do was stay out of the way, avoid making mistakes. A national whistle-stop campaign presented the danger of constant pressure to explain your ideas. Then there was the fact that he was a polio survivor and a paraplegic. The trip would be grueling, and while he appeared healthy, it would become obvious to people that he was, in the end, handicapped. Would the voting public accept that a half-paralyzed person could be president? Roosevelt threw caution to the wind. Part of this, in his own words, was due to Dutch stubbornness. Part of it was due to the fact that he was a recovering polio victim who wanted to test himself. Finally, part of it was he believed Hoover's biggest failing was in the fact that he was too cautious. FDR wanted to be the boldest president since Abraham Lincoln. On this tour, he gave the people his view of government or his philosophy of government. He believed the depression was caused by a breakdown in the capitalist system and that the American people would not escape from this misery without the intervention of government. In a Roosevelt administration, government planners would temper and guide the competition, um, adding the visible hand of the government to the invisible hand of the marketplace. He was calling for a major expansion of government. However, as many politicians tend to do, he was contradicting himself. While calling for the expansion of government on the one hand, he also said that his New Deal would trim government. He claimed, quote, We are paying for the cost of our three kinds of government $135 a year for every man, woman, and child, end quote, in the country, or about $600 total. Now, this was outrageous, and it could not be sustained, or so he said. So, in one breath, he called for major spending, and then in the other breath, he said he was going to cut government spending. Okay, <laughs> sure. Now, he hammered at the Hoover administration for saying it was going to balance the budget, and then, according to him, failed to balance the budget. Now, his administration, um, so he said, would speak plainly and truthfully and would manage the government more efficiently. Quote, I regard reduction in federal spending as one of the most important issues of this campaign. In my opinion, it is the most direct and effective contribution that government can make to business, end quote. To summarize, Roosevelt called for a balanced budget and a 25% reduction in government spending. He criticized Hoover for running a budget deficit, but at the same time, proposed unemployment aid from the government. To say Hoover disliked Roosevelt would be an understatement. He despised his rival. Unlike Roosevelt, but quite like Al Smith, Herbert Hoover had earned everything he had. In his mind, Roosevelt had not earned anything, and he assumed Roosevelt was lacking in character and ability. He would readily admit FDR was charismatic, but that did not mean much to Hoover. While Hoover was very likely to have lost the election no matter what happened, or no matter who he was running against, the Bonus Army fiasco sealed the deal. Veterans of World War I, many of whom were unemployed, demanded payment of a bonus they had been promised for old age. Now, of course, they wanted it early. They had marched on Washington, and they were dubbed the Bonus Army. However, uh, Hoover opposed the early payment of the bonus, noting the government could not afford it. I remember, FDR had relentlessly condemned Hoover for profligacy on the one hand while saying he had not done enough on the other. I suspect Hoover took the former quite personally and it started to affect his thinking at least here. Hoover ran on a platform that called for higher tariffs and the maintenance of the gold standard. He also reaffirmed his faith in free enterprise and individual initiative. There was also a difference in tone between the two. FDR exuded optimism. Hoover, not so much. Roosevelt ended up defeating Hoover 472-59, to 59, with the incumbent only winning six states. African Americans, who had traditionally been loyal to the Republican Party, began shifting to the Democrats in 1932. That shift would be completed in 1936. African Americans um, were now going to be a vital element in the Democratic Party coalition moving forward. This also began a two-decade dominance of the Democrats at the federal level. Needless to say, Hoover was not happy, and you could argue he tried to bind Roosevelt to anti-inflationary policy, which would then have jeopardized his future New Deal programs. It didn't work, but keep this animosity in mind when people try to say the transition from Donald Trump to Joe Biden was unique in the way that they didn't really work together, okay, or they didn't work with each other. Um, I'd say cooperation is rarer than we sometimes think. In the meantime, the economy came to a virtual halt. Change was already afoot in January 1933. 
The 20th Amendment was ratified, and that changed the presidential, vice presidential, and congressional terms to start in January going forward. It was clear the lame duck period was too long, especially in a crisis situation. The starting of a term in March uh, had made sense back in the 18th century when you did not have mass transportation. By the 1930s, you had trains, planes, and automobiles. Thus, FDR, when re-elected in 1936, would become the first president to be inaugurated in January. Now, a second major change was the passage of the 21st Amendment in February 1933. It repealed prohibition in March, the new Congress legalized light beer. The amendment was quickly ratified by the states and took effect in December of 1933. All right, well, <laughs> amazingly enough, we are at the end. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this super massive episode on FDR. And next time, we're going to take a look at his New Deal policies. All right, thank you very much. Have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.